It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you would, Alex, turn the lights on for me. And if you have little ones through grade 3 and you'd like them to be in children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. Follow the herd out. They're always excited to go as we are excited to stay, right? Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Hope you've been in God's Word this week. Make sure it's your habit to daily get into the Word on a regular weekly, daily basis, working your way through. We do have a trifold you can follow to help you do that. You can go in version and read through the Bible in a year, but let me encourage you to be making that your habit, that you may know what the Lord would say to you, holding up that holy standard, being able to praise Him for those things and understand His will for your life. We're in a continuing study, God's plan for a healthy church through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We're in Second Corinthians 7. Last week, we started a new section of what we know as Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, 15 verses that deal with reconciliation and restoration and relationships and the joy of God at work in the hearts of his people. And that really breaks that down, that passage down with some handholds so you'll know how uh, where we're going as we move through. I'd like you to look at 2 Corinthians 7, 2. We'll read 2 through 4. That's going to be our passage today. This is our desire to to dig in and, and understand some of this. We just really laid the groundwork last week, and then there were a lot of questions that came up, and so we'll spend some time kind of addressing that. Most of them had a, a singular orientation about love, and so we'll talk about that today. Make room f- for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Verse 3, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Verse 4, great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf, I'm filled with comfort, I'm overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. Life can be fraught with difficulty, we've experienced hardship, all of us, uh, no doubt to a greater or lesser degree, hard times, unexpected trouble can really have to cause you to rely on the Lord and really dig in and work through or learn to accept things that come along. And with the grace of God, of course, that he gives in those times. But it seems that some of the most difficult things that happen uh, that create a burden that seems greater than physical trouble is trouble that comes through relationships. I think most of us could agree that as we uh, think about our life, it's easier for us to deal with perhaps the unavoidable things that come, unexpected things that come on us uh, physically, perhaps financially, uh, maybe a job situation. All those kinds of things are or easier to deal with than perhaps difficulties in relationships. Misunderstandings, hard feelings, offenses happen in the course of life. People hurt people, and sometimes those types of things are more difficult to deal with than the unexpected trouble. And I think it's because our pride can get involved. Our, our personal evaluation of, of, quote, what we deserved or didn't deserve is always playing in there in some respect. And, and those can be significant obstacles. Maybe you've had those kinds of feelings uh, when your integrity was marred by an untruth. Maybe uh, someone has gossiped about you. Maybe you've suffered as a result of someone else's actions uh, or some maybe unintended slight. But those types of things can be like a wound that won't heal because they just seem to be right there on the surface and easily, easily disturbed and unforgiveness keeps the wound open. I don't think I'm telling you anything that you're not aware of already. But Paul is dealing with the church here as he comes to 2 Corinthians. We've talked numerous times about how the difference between the 1 Corinthians and 2 is in 2 we see a lot of Paul's heart about how he deals with the issues that have come up as opposed to just dealing directly with how the church has either is or isn't following the Lord's guidance for health, for health in the church. But considering the way Paul has been treated by this church, arguably the worst church in the New Testament, um, it would be easy for Paul to hold on to some hurt, to keep the wounds open. I think from a flesh perspective, we could justify that. If you've read through those two letters, you know some of the things that have been said, perhaps things that you have never heard at any time in the course of your ministry from someone, but Paul heard them on a regular basis, or maybe you have. But we saw last week that Paul did not hold on to the hurt, and what's interesting here is, is what brings it to our attention so clearly is that this church was actually 
holding on to offense. The church is the one who had offended Paul over and over. The church is the one who had dealt hardship on Paul, but this church is actually holding on to the offense. So I think that's the worst possible situation, don't you? When you're actually the offended party, but the other person thinks they're the offended party. And it's not always a two-way street. It's not always, well, there's some shared on both ends. Sometimes it, there isn't anything shared on the other end. Sometimes that uh, you are the offended party. But the other person's holding on to some offense, and that's what's happening here. The church is actually the offending party. They treated him very unjustly and unkindly, and they had created a scenario where Paul, dealing with the church as a faithful, committed minister, was actually blamed for the difficulty that came about as a result of his ministry. Consequently, many in the church were actually holding animosity towards Paul as if he were the instigator of all the trouble as opposed to just being the one who's just discharging his ministry as the Lord has given him to do. And perhaps that's happened to you. Maybe you are in it now. Maybe you are ministering. It will undoubtedly happen to you if you have taken up uh, your position as an ambassador of Christ and as a minister of reconciliation. It will undoubtedly happen to you. And and I think that uh, that's part of the paradox of ministry we looked at before, that you're regarded as evil and yet true and and you have glory and then dishonor. It, those things are always back and forth. You're somebody's hero and somebody's villain, and you did a good job with something, but somebody else thinks you did a terrible job, and they don't know the whole story. And that whole thing is just part of the actual fabric of the ministry. So I think if you're ministering, it's undoubtedly going to be part of something that you will have to go through. And the question is, what do you do? What can you do? And, and again, the situation can be uh, much more crushing and discouraging than going through a health issue or dealing with financial hardship or an unforeseen problem because these relationship things just kind of keep an open wound if we kind of hold on to the unforgiveness. And so what do you do? And last week we were able to see some very important steps to make the pathway clear to reconciliation, because that's really what these these three verses are all about. Um, and Paul, uh, again, our example through the combination of truth and humility and some common ground and encouragement, he wants to put the church in a position where it could follow God's plan for a healthy body. And, and that attitude, of course, becomes our example as we deal with a hurt and possible unforgiveness in our lives. So in 2 Corinthians 7, 2, he begins to, to bridge the gap, and that's what he's trying to do here. Even though he's been offended and they continue to offend him, they're holding on to some offense as if Paul was the instigator. But Paul's not holding on to the hurt, and he's not letting that continuing offense coming from the church stop him from bridging the gap. And so that becomes this example for us in these very difficult times uh, that you may go through it's how that's what that's supposed to look like. And so uh, this is his encouragement for reconciliation. He says this, he says in verse two, he says, make room for us, make room for us in your hearts. And that make room as the active imperative of Koreo. So uh, the verb form is the aorist imperative. It just means that Paul was looking for some specific action. Uh, other times he may just give a direct command. Here he's looking for a specific point of time where things begin to change. And so that's the idea there. And, and it just means Paul's he's looking for the process to move forward. And he, he desires to have a right relationship with them. And love has to be a two-way street for there to be reconciliation. And so for Paul to even get to this point where he could pursue reconciliation and a restored relationship, he saw Paul has a certain type of love for this church. Paul is extending this kind of love to the church, and he's asking for it back. And we see it commanded in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. We looked at this last time. It's worth a look again. Here's where the questions came. The passage reads this way. Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Here it is. Fervently love one another from the heart. And the question comes up, of course, when we teach that kind of thing is, what does that look like? And how can I possibly do that? But it's a clear command for us. Fervently love each other from the heart. And Precedence for that is that you have been born again so that you have the availability and the resource by the Holy Spirit's presence in your life and God's love poured abroad in your heart to extend that love. And the question really is, and if you're honest and you're in that kind of situation where perhaps you were the offended party and yet the other person's holding the offense and it seems like an impasse, how are we possibly going to work this out? They've offended, but I want to have reconciliation. How am I going to work this out? Because it would be easy for Paul to just say, you know, I'm not the guilty one here. And that would be a true statement. Paul isn't the guilty one here. Regardless of what the church may say, Paul has discharged his, his, uh, his ministry as an underroar, as a table waiter to the church on a faithful basis. He's not condemned before the Lord. He stands before the Lord. He hasn't done what he's needed to do. And it would be easy for him to say, you know, I'm not going to waste my feelings. 
See, I'm just tired of being hurt. But he didn't, because that isn't how the church is supposed to be. And even in the middle of hardship or misunderstanding or grievance or even outright offense, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, above all, whatever it is, the outright offense, difficult times, grievances, whatever it is going on, and some other things we'll look at shortly, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, and then this, because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says, you were equipped to agape, that's the love, you were, you were equipped to love this way, and love this way even covers direct offense. This type of love, a fervent love, covers direct offense. What does that mean? It means it covers things people have done to you, and you don't have to chase them down. That's what it means. And I've told the church over and over again that people come and say, well, how, you know, somebody said this about me, what should I do? Well, you have really two choices. You can fervently love the person or let love cover a multitude of offenses. What's that mean? Well, that means that you won't chase it down and that you love them more than whatever it was that they did. Well, they won't learn anything. Well, perhaps not, but it isn't really in your place to teach them anyway. Or you can chase it down and you can say, you've offended me. You go to them privately and say, you've offended me. And they might not agree. They may say, okay, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And then everything's great. But they may say, well, oh, I'm sorry. I said what was true. And, and I'm sorry if that offended you. Now you're in a, the same position you were in before. It's actually, it's complicated it. For me, it has anyway, because you've, you brought the offense forward to someone and then, and they've said, well, I, I don't, you know, I don't owe you an apology. I didn't do anything wrong to you. So now what do you have to do? You still have to forgive, don't you? And now you've complicated it for yourself because now it's a bunch of self-talk going on. Well, what are you talking about as you walk away from that? I can't believe that's what, how they would answer me, see? And so Paul could get into this self-talk, couldn't he? He could just walk away and say, hey, I'm not, I'm not messing with this anymore, okay? I, you know, I'm not the guilty one here. I'm not going to waste my feelings. I'm tired of getting hurt. But instead, see, he says, we see from First Peter, and we're going to see Paul teach clearly on this shortly. That's what we're going to look at today. Peter says, you're equipped to love this way, and love this way even covers a direct offense. And we've seen this word fervent twice in two verses. It is the adjective ectinase. It's from the word ectino, which just means to stretch out or stretch forth. A fervent love is a stretchy kind of love. I told you it's kind of like lycra last week. You know, the more that's in the cloth, the more it'll cover, right? And that's the idea there when you think about a fervent kind of love, a stretch out, covering kind of love. Peter says, keep, keep, present active participle, fervent in your love for one another. But the idea is that stretchy kind of reaching out and stretch and cover and not break, even in the middle of intense situations, things that are a lot bigger than they should have been. And that love can stretch out and cover that, see? Peter instructs the church that the love they should have for one another is flexible, durable, covering of love. Love is always active, it's always acting, and it's in this context, uh, it's, it's part and parcel of life in the church because a love like that, a love Paul is demonstrating to the church, it can cover a lot of problems between people. And, and that's what he's doing here as he's blamed for the hardship and the animosity and considering the offending party uh, when the truth of the matter was it was exactly the opposite. He's not the offending party. But he is extending love, and he's saying, open your hearts to us. So love has to be a two-way street. For, for reconciliation to occur, there's going to have to be two, two uh, the love coming from both directions. You know, and he, so again, people are like, well, how do I do that? You know, what do I do in a situation like that? How, what, is, what does fervent love look like? Well, the first thing you want to remember is that when, before you call the other person to love as a two-way street, before you call the other person to a fervent love, make sure that you're on that street already. And it's easy to talk about this, and it's easy to read passages that have it in there, but it's really hard to do it. But you're going to get that opportunity, perhaps today, and maybe you already have it in your life now, and you're thinking about what that situation may be, but it'll certainly be part of your future. It might be your relationship with your spouse, it could be your relationship with a, a sibling or, or a child or, or an in-law somewhere. Love is going to have to be a two-way street, and you're going to have to figure out what that's going to look like. And how you're going to do that. So you've got to be on that street already before you call somebody to it. And, and that's an important concept to incorporate into our actions and our interactions. Because Paul spent a lot of time explaining what kind of love uh, love looked like. Very sobering, very necessary. People, people ask, how can I deal with others who've hurt me or, you know, or someone I know? How can I deal with that? How, how can I get over this feeling of betrayal or bitterness or any number of other feelings when there's been misunderstanding or offense? How do I do that? And everybody struggles with those things at some point, and that isn't surprising. What is surprising, though, because we see that in the world, and that's not unusual, but what's, in fact, movies are made about that, aren't they? In fact, 
very movies that do very well in the box office are made about unforgiveness. They're made about retaliation and revenge and all those things that we we enjoy watching things blow up and people you know get hurt and all that kind of stuff. That, so Hollywood is driven by that, but the church is not supposed to be driven that way. And so we're struggling with it. And, and but it's not surprising that it's in the world. What's surprising is is that men and women hang on to these kinds of things in the church. That the church actually looks like this, that there's unforgiveness, see? especially considering the Matthew 18 and the unjust servant, right? The servant who comes to his master with an unpayable debt. You remember? We, we've looked at it. And he can't pay it, and his master what? Forgives him. And then what does he do? He goes out to someone who has a payable debt owed to him and demands that he pay him back, right? And... and of course, it's all cut up in, in an illustration of what unforgiveness looks like and how unjust it is for someone who's been forgiven an unpayable debt. And who would that be? Right. We've been forgiven an unpayable debt. Christ took it to the cross. And then to turn around and not forgive. See, This, this is a serious problem in the church. This is so surprising that it continues in the church. And if, as people think, it's possible to continue in fellowship with the Lord and then hold on to those kinds of offenses. See, But this is a continuing problem in the Corinthian church. And even with all the instruction and even with Jesus' admonition in his, in his example of prayer, Matthew 6.14, and we read this, but I don't think we're incorporating this. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also what? Forgive you. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Every believer wants God's blessing. Every believer goes to God to ask for help. And Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, their transgressions against you you have interrupted the fellowship between yourself and another member of the body. So, you don't have any fervent love at work there, and you have interrupted the fellowship between you and whom? And God. We're not talking about eternal salvation. We're talking about a fellowship perspective. People who are redeemed, who haven't forgiven someone else, they've interrupted that fellowship with the Lord. But it's very surprising. A lot of people still live right there. People in the church holding on to offenses. They've interrupted the flow of blessing and answered prayer. Not only are we supposed to forgive and reconcile with fellow believers, which is Paul's emphasis in our passage, which is love as a two-way street, a fervent, stretching out kind of love, which is really the love of, and we'll see in just a moment, this is really a love of self-sacrifice. People ask, well, how can I do this? Well, this is what it's going to look like. That's going to be a love of self-sacrifice. That's the agape kind of love. So there's going to be a love of self-sacrifice. There's a commonality we saw last week that you share. And Paul had to speak the truth and love to them. That was our third point, that he had to make it clear what was going on, and that he hadn't offended them, and he hadn't, he hadn't taken advantage of anybody and all that, all the passages we looked at last week. And not only that, but Jesus says, you know, the whole forgiveness thing with, with prayer, you're, you're going to prayer and ask the Lord to forgive your, uh, your trespasses, but you're not forgiving other people, then you interrupted that, that, um, Fellowship, but not only that, Luke 6 27, Jesus is talking to his disciples, says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Again, agape te, present active imperative. What does that mean? Well, Jesus gives the meaning. Do good to those who what? Hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's the love of what? That's self sacrificing love, isn't it? And this may be someone in the church. I certainly hope not, but it, it certainly happens. So there's someone who certainly doesn't care for you, whatever it is. See, Jesus isn't telling his followers to have a romantic feeling about those who dislike them. He isn't saying to them, you know, have wonderful, warm, contented feelings for them because those things are not possible. What does he say? What he's saying is to make an act of self-sacrifice on their behalf. Mark this in Luke 6.35. Here it is again. Love your enemies. What's that mean, Jesus? Do good. And lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. What's that going to look like? See, how do, what am I going to do? Well, we can start with people who really dislike you. There's what you do. Fervent love is going to look like that. See. In other words, this kind of love is the kind of love that God gives, see? He gives love to those who are unkind. He gives those to ungrateful, evil men. And how did God love his enemies? God loved his enemies enough to send his son to what? Die on their behalf. Because, as if we understand scripture correctly, you and I used to be what? God's enemies. 
So God gives us an example of that kind of love. Jesus sets the pattern by giving us this definition of that kind of love because there's no use of agape without action, see. It's the most important realization we can have to help us function correctly in the church. There's not going to be any fervent kind of love. There's not going to be any agape kind of love without action on your part. According to Paul, in our passage, it really comes down to this issue. It's not, you know, what's the least you'll take, Lord? You know, what's the minimum I can do and qualify as fervent love? It's not that. Ask the Lord to reveal where you are when it comes to love and whose definition you're using. See. So your first step is make sure you're on the road. And then what definition are you using to describe it? How radical are you? Do you love those who don't like you? Because that love would be obvious because you're doing self-sacrificing things for them. I've told you before, you know, people offend you and they do hard things to you. The best way to get on top of the whole self-talk that usually happens after that is begin to pray for their blessing. See, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. That means to ask the Lord to bring good things to them and pray for those who mistreat you. When you begin to do that, beloved, you begin to put yourself on that fervent love road. And you'll find that's the easiest way to get over your hard feelings is to begin to pray. As soon as that name comes into your mind, perhaps it did already today, uh, that situation, then you begin to pray for that person specifically. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. An act of self-sacrifice. So as you think about all of this, don't, you know, the church is a busy place. We, we, get, we get connected to all kinds of things that are going on. Many of you did ministries already this morning. Some are doing ministries downstairs. Some will do it this week. I, I would just say, and we're going to see this in just a minute very, very clearly, but I don't want you to center on how busy you are. I don't want you to center in the church about, you know, how many projects you head up or whether you teach a class or not or how many services you're in the nursery or, or, or whatever. Okay, center on whether... This kind of love is there. Okay. And we could certainly say that the scriptures deem it the most important thing from God's perspective. And as opposed to the definitions and descriptions of the world based on feelings and emotions, biblical love, fervent love, is based on the will. It's based on the will. To love somebody in terms of an act of self-sacrifice, because that's what you're doing when you fervently love someone, stretching over to cover an offense. This type of self-sacrifice is, is not a feeling. It's a determination that you're going to make in your mind. See? In other words, this is what God has told me to do, and this is what I will do. So, so again, we're kind of addressing the questions from last week. You know, how do I do that? I mean, that just seems so hard. I'm not even sure how to measure if I'm doing it correctly. That's this is for that. Okay. John says in uh, John chapter 13, verse 34, that this love is the true identity of the church. That's why I told you, you know, don't worry about how busy you are, how many projects you head up here, whether you teach a class, how many. At times you are in the nursery, how many times you're in toddlers, how many you know, times you serve at bistro or you mop the floor or whatever it is that you do. We're so grateful for mow the grass or whatever. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Again, agape, and what does agape do? It always has action. You love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. And as we saw last week in just a few minutes ago, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all things, above your nursery schedule, above your teaching schedule, your projects around the church, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So not only is it your identity in Christianity, we're supposed to enthusiastically and zealously pursue it to cover over the sins of others against us. That's what the church is supposed to look like. That's how you're going to have fellowship with the Lord. That's how your prayers are not going to be interrupted. It's a volitional act. You have the ability to do it because the Holy Spirit resides in you if you're born again, and it is moving on that ability in whatever that situation is around you. See, And I briefly mentioned it last week, but I want to take a few moments and compare what we see here with the passage we looked at as I looked back more than four years ago from 1 Corinthians 13. And I want you to turn there. Would you do that? It's a passage that needs to be visited fairly often. Maybe you got a card this week because it's Valentine's week. You know, Maybe you got a card with that in it. And you read through it, and you know it's very common for us. We hear it at weddings. We, we hear it all the time. And it, 
It's a passage I think that needs to be visited a little bit more often than just in a card. And it's, it's the weekend of Valentine's Day, so you can apply it to your spouse if you'd like. But understand, it's, it's a broader application than just your immediate family, although that's where you start to practice it. It's going to work in the church. Fervent love is going to look like this. This is the example of what fervent love looks like. And um, I'm not going to break it all down and pull it apart from you like I, pull apart from you like I did four years ago. You can, you can grab that study if you want and, uh, and listen to it if you have some time. But I like the passage for a number of reasons. And all of the application, of course, in the life of the believer. But I like it most of all because it's a filter, if you will. It, um, it pulls away everything that might seem important in the church and reveals the underlying requirement. See. Now, how can I love like that? What, you know, what does it look like, this fervent love? Well, this is the place where we go to find that. See? And it strips away everything. It filters out everything. Uh, no matter what you're doing, it gets filtered away. And then we find out what's really left. As we kind of perk it on down. And, and, and if, if reconciliation is the heart of relationships in the church, which we saw last week, that really is, we've established that, it's very clear. And for reconciliation to work, love has to be a two-way street. People always want to know, well, how they, how they can make, what they can do to make that a reality in their lives, see. And, and so the passage can just be read without illustrations. And it really just peels away all the reticence and all the reluctance to forgive. And, and we could just read the verses. And so that's what we're going to do. And so, I'm going to go fairly rapidly because this is a supplement to our passage, but I want to take some time to make sure we see it, and I think it will be enriching for you uh, in our passage on reconciliation and what that looks like, a fervent love inside the church. And so we're going to spend some time here. So bear with me, and I know that you'll be encouraged as you do this. And look around you as, as you think about how you're supposed to make this work. You're going to start with those closest to you, of course, and then as you work out into the church, it's going to be visible there too. So look at verse 1. Paul starts with this amazing statement. He says this, as you think about your church ministry, okay, this kind of sums it up. The first couple of verses kind of sums up every kind of church ministry there could be, okay, and 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 the best of all the church ministries, if you will, and and all the all the ones with the best possible outcome. He says this: If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So, let's take that for a second. Do you think you're eloquent? Do you think that uh, you're great because you can speak one of the languages of men that you didn't know before? And he ties it back to the more excellent way from the previous chapter. He corrected the church's thinking about spiritual gifts, all those things they could do. I'm going to show you a more excellent way, and that's love. And then uh, the way everything has to be done in the church for it to matter. If you have all the spirit-given ability, but you don't minister it in a self-sacrificing way with love for the common good, then you really can do nothing. You can really do nothing. The best speech on earth without love is only noise. That's it. Verse 2 says this, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but not have love, I am nothing. In other words, Paul says, are you really important to the church? Do you have gifts that can bring real benefit to them? The things that you do, can people really benefit from all that you're involved with? See? If you have gifts that can bring benefit, if, if you have all of that spirit, spirit gift ability and the gifts that have continued to be important to the church throughout all the ages, but you don't minister them in a self-sacrificing way, that's agape love. You don't minister it that way. You don't have this fervent kind of love towards uh, and expressing that in actions towards other people. For the common good, you are nothing. You can do nothing. You are nothing. And these are wonderful gifts. You know all the mysteries and all the knowledge and you have all the faith that you could remove mountains, see? And you can tell forth the scriptures in a very clear manner. Wonderful gifts. But if they're not being done with a fervent love for other members of the body of Christ, not only are they not very important, they are of no value and the holder is nothing. He's of no help to anyone. That's heaven's evaluation of what goes on in the church. And verse 3 says this, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. What's that mean? Well, in one comprehensive move, you could sell all you have and give it away for the benefit of the less fortunate. In one moment, you could pay the ultimate sacrifice of your life for whatever cause there may be. 
And Paul's saying that it's possible for you to give your material wealth and give up your body to martyrdom and make this spectacular sacrifice and do it without love. Paul says it's possible to do that without fervent love. And if you do it apart from agape, you will have nothing to show for your generosity. So if you're a great giver and you know that you underwrite a lot of stuff that's going on, and we're very grateful for that and all that, but if you're doing that apart from agape love, a fervent type of love that covers the covers the the fences of other people. If you're not on that road, you're doing all this stuff, you'll have nothing to show for your generosity. So this is the way things are to be done, see? The highest gifts, the most noteworthy business, the most important activities, they're all worth nothing if love is absent. And, and, And you can't do ministry that amounts to anything without it. So it's not surprising you can't reconcile relationships without it. You can't do anything in the church without it that amounts to anything, see? And no matter where you stop in the scriptures, it's the same story. It's the same process. We have to do the work of God, God's way. And when we're talking about love, that's what we're talking about. See, I want to do what God wants me to do. There's no self-seeking here. There's no pride. There's no selfishness. There's no self-glory. There's no vanity here. Remember, you can't whip all that out of your hat. Okay? You're not going to just walk up to somebody and just start doing this. This is going to have to be time that you spend. Paul says in Romans 12, 9, says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what's evil, cling to what's good. If you're going to love someone with sincerity, it's going to take some. It's going to take precedence over everything else that you do. See, in order to interact this way, you'll have to walk in the Spirit. And according to Colossians three sixteen, that means letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means you spend regular quality time in the Word of God, and it's going to lead you to committing passages to memory, and that's going to lead you to begin to allow the Spirit of God to govern your thought patterns, and that is the essence of turning control of your life over to the Spirit of God. That's how that's going to work. Okay, people say, "Well, how can I, you know, how can I do this? You know, what what's that going to look like?" And we're going to cover both of those. But here's here's it: you got to make sure you're on the road, and you're not going to be on this road. You're going to whip this out of your hat. Okay, you're not going to start te- uh, treating your spouse in this way unless you're doing these kinds of things. Okay, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You spend regular quality time in the word of God. It's going to lead you, catch this, it's going to lead you to committing passages to memory because the more you're in the word of God, the more familiar you are with it. And as the more familiar you are with it, the more it begins to come back and cycle its way through your mind, right? And that will lead you to begin to allow the spirit of God to govern your thought patterns, see? As, as you begin to have these situations come up, these passages that you've been reading begin to be recycled. This is how you're renewing your mind, beloved. That's the essence of turning control of your life over the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God begins to control you. He produces the fruit of that control. And the first fruit he produces is the fruit of... What's the first fruit? Love. So you're going to begin to have that, see, as you begin to do the things we're just talking about. You're going to be on that road if you're allowing your mind to be transformed, see. And love only will come... It's only going to come that way, see? And it's a volitional response in that you must yield. Yield your life to the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, control me today. Take over my life. Live through me based on my time in your word. See, that's the part. I mean, everybody wants to be controlled by the Spirit, and then they get in this situation, and the first thing out of their mouth is not spirit control. see? The first response to your spouse, not spirit control. Or your child, or the person in front of you in traffic, or whatever. So saying, Holy Spirit, control me today, take over my life, live through me. I'm so sorry I just did that. But you're still not renewing your mind by, the, by spending time in the Word and let it dwelling in you richly. That fruit of the Spirit is not going to begin to come and be visible. See, It's going to look like this. If you want to have fervent love for one another, you're going to have to spend time in the Word. Because that's not going to come naturally to you. And some of them, the people will be people who really don't like you. You begin to let the Holy Spirit take control because you're spending time in the Word and the fruit of love will be there in ever-increasing increments, see, to be applied in your service to other people. And Paul has shown that even the highest gifts are, are worth nothing at all if love's absent. We just saw that. Now he looks at, at situations when love is present. Now look at verse 13, chapter 13, verse 4. And, and this connects us so intricately to our verses from 2 Corinthians 7, okay, where Paul is calling for a fervent kind of love. Here's, here's what it's going to look like. When he says, make room for us in your hearts, in verse 2, and then he says, you are in our hearts, in, in verse 3, you know, the kind of love he has for them, uh, this is what it's going to look like, okay? 
So people say, well, how do I do that and what it's going to look like? So I just told you how to do that. You're going to have to spend time in the Word. And as you spend time, more and more time in the Word, and those, those passages begin to be memorized in your mind, he begins to renew your mind, and then your first comments begin to be those types of uh, comments, the right, correct types of comments, and your reactions to people are going to be a fervent type of love in ever-increasing amounts, okay? So that's how you're going to get on that road, because you're telling other people, you know, I want you, you need to love and, 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 and return that love to me. You got to be on that road yourself. And that's how you get on that road, okay? Now, what's it, what is it going to look like? Now, this is, just so that you know, when, when I do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, this is, this is part of the homework, okay? It's just very simple. Uh, you don't have to have a five-step book, okay? Just, Start doing the things the Lord has said to do. The first thing, of course, is to be in the Word so you can be spirit-controlled. And that's why I tell couples over and over again, you don't know what your life is going to hold. And you may have a lot of difficulty. You know, I was watching a wedding. How many watched Steve Barrett's wedding on, on Facebook? Do you remember Steve, Big Big Rojo? Yeah. Used to come here for years while I was in graduate school. Anyway, he got married. I don't know if you know that. Uh, he got married to a wonderful Jewish girl who was a believer. And they got married in Israel. And he live cast that on Facebook on Friday afternoon, or Friday morning, rather. And uh, I watched it later, and uh, it was amazing. And, and there was a whole bunch of stuff in there that I just thought was wonderful. It was all in Hebrew, but they translated the entire thing. But at the end of the, of the, of the ceremony, you probably know this, in some Middle Eastern cultures, they, they break the, the cup. Do you know why? So I've seen it before, but the pastor took a minute, and he explained it. So after they've said their vows and they exchange their rings and everything's done and they're getting ready to go to the reception and just joy is at its max, he said the reason why they step on the cup is because joy is not complete for humans on this earth. And in the middle of probably the most joyous occasion you can perhaps think of in your mind, which is getting married, to spend the rest of your physical life on earth with this one person, it's a good reminder that joy is not complete on earth. It's only going to be complete in heaven. And that when you step off of this uh, this stage and you move into your life, that there's going to be hardship and the world brings sorrow and difficulty and all that. And breaking the cup at the end of the ceremony reminds you that your joy is not going to be complete until you're in heaven. And I like that. That's a good reminder. And and I remind couples about this. And like, you know, you don't know what your life is going to be like, but I'll tell you one thing. If you commit yourself to be let the word of God dwell in you richly every single day of your life, you will be able to manage it, whatever it is, because the Lord will equip you for whatever comes along. He'll equip you for whatever disagreements you have with your spouse. In fact, that's the only way you're going to overcome them. And there's all kinds of stuff, you know, communicate, you know, all these kinds of books, you know, key to communication. All that. Well, yeah, but if you're not sphere control, that communication is not going to be that great. Okay. You guys know this, right? If you're in the flesh, and you're communicating with your spouse. That's not going to go well. But if you're spending time in the word each day, and you're letting the word dwell in you richly with all wisdom, and it's transforming your mind every day, the first spiritual gift that's going to be start to be visible is love. And that fervent kind of love is the most important thing you can possibly give out to someone. Let love cover a multitude of offenses. Listen, that works with your spouse, okay? They'll always do stuff that, that annoy you, and you'll do stuff that annoys them. But love covers a multitude of sins, see? So this is, what is this going to look like? Well, this is homework. Okay, here it is. Let's just read verses 4 through 7 and we'll break it down. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love is not, does not act unbecoming. Does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Stop right there. Self-sacrificing love is the subject of a number of verbs. Fervent love illustrated, if you will. That's what we have here. So the question is, how can I do this? What will it look like is answered. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is patient is a good verb. Mac wrote through meo. Present active indicative. I won't do this with all of them, but I, I just want you to see if you imagine yourself in this passage and you ask the question, if I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, if I'm going to display above all things a fervent love, what will the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit be in my life? This is, this is the answer, okay? It's not really that complicated. Love is presented as the subject here. It indicates a person and you're that person. 
Okay, so as you read love, realize you can put your name in there, and then that's what it's going to look like when you have a fervent kind of love expressed uh, inside your family, inside the family of Christ. See, and Patience has to do with an overall attitude, a character trait that marks your life. Makuthameo is bear long or suffer long. That's what it means to preserve patiently and bravely enduring misfortunes and troubles. That's what it means. To persevere, to be patient, to be mild, slow in avenging, to be long-suffering, slow in anger, slow to punish. Okay. And in your notes, you can make some... I asked you to put it in the first person in your notes. I've got some things underlined there. You can make that application. Okay. Be long-suffering, to be slow to anger, to be slow to punish. That's what it means. Love is patient. Love is kind. Really, it, it, this verb is only found here in the New Testament. Kind acts have to do with regularly occurring actions that you do. It, it's the reality of your day or week or uh, regular occurring deeds. Deeds that are good in the sense of what's upright and righteous. These are deeds that are beneficial to someone. These are deeds that meet the needs of others. These are de deeds that bless other people. So love is patient, perseveres long, and waits. It doesn't retaliate. See? And love is kind. It does good things to someone, what is upright and righteous. So it's not a subjective kind of kindness. It's an objective kind of kindness. What does righteous things look like? Well, that's what you're doing. Good things look like. Now, at the beginning of verse 4 all the way through verse 6, Paul lists eight things, actions love doesn't do. So these two things uh, love does do. Let's look at the first three that take us through the end of the verse. It's not jealous. Does not brag. It's not arrogant. Jealous is the Greek verb zelo. It is earnest desiring for something. And the idea there, of course, jealousy has you know good and bad connotations in the scripture. We have a jealous God who is jealous for our worship, and that's a good thing. Desires very much for us to conform and do what he asks us to do. There's some bad connotations in scripture. This is one of the bad ones. This is the idea here. It means displeased by the success of somebody else. Um, patience and kindness are key actions at the core of fervent love's expression. These eight things are the things that love doesn't do. And these are precisely the things the Corinthian church was doing. So just to keep that in perspective. Displeased at the success of other people. And Paul just switches it around and he says, um, love does not brag. Speaking of yourself over and over. Jealousy desires to have what someone else has or is displeased by the success of someone. Bragging desires to make someone else desire what you have. It's not arrogant. If you want to know what love, a fervent kind of love in the church looks like or in your family, it's not an arrogant love. It's, it's the idea of haughtiness. The literal meaning is blowing up or inflating. Fusio. The root word has to do with what is natural, but here it takes the difference in puffing them up and making them look better. Paul says these actions are the opposite of love. So Paul says there's no room in the life of the believer for that kind of behavior. You can have all the best gifts to the full extent, but if your actions are the actions of jealousy or bragging or arrogance, then your work adds up to nothing. Then he says, uh, look at verse 5. He says, it does not act unbecomingly. And... and all of these things are things that love doesn't do. It doesn't seek its own, not provoke, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And, and you can read your name before each of those things. Okay. Does not act unbecomingly. This is what you could be called behavior ugliness. Akemoneo. It's, it's when you were a child, perhaps your parents would say, you know, behave yourself. And you kind of had an idea what that meant in the context of wherever you were, right? And so it had many interpretations based on what was appropriate for the situation. If you had company and your parents said, behave yourself, it means, you know, don't come out of the bathroom in your underwear or whatever, you know, the kinds of things kids do. You know this, right? You know, keep your elbows off the table and, you know, use a napkin and Kleenex and those kinds of things. 
you know, if you're sitting in church, behave yourself. You know what that means. If you're in the backseat of the car, you know, with your sibling. That's the idea here, too. So, so um, love does not act unbecomingly. A number of translations have love is not rude. Maybe that's what yours says. And that would certainly be inside the definition of rudeness. But really, it's whatever, whatever answer, whatever conduct, whatever demeanor, whatever bearing, whatever appearance, whatever reaction that would be considered rude for the situation. Love doesn't do that. Think through it. Whatever be inappropriate for the situation, whatever be rude for the situation, whatever action, whatever conduct, whatever demeanor, whatever bearing, whatever appearance would be inappropriate for the situation. Love does not do that. If I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, then I won't act unbecomingly. See, Otherwise, that'll be the evidence that fervent love is absent. Now, let's look at the next one. Love does not seek its own. Siteo. In other words, love isn't self-centered. It doesn't try to figure out how to get its own way. That's what love doesn't do. It doesn't demand something from someone else. Love does not seek its own. And, and this was the point of Paul's commands in chapter 10 as it relates to the activities inside freedom in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, he says, uh, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Remember this? All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek zeteo, his own. If you're thinking about if it's good for you, that's not love. But that of his neighbor, see. That's what it means. If I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, if I'm going to pursue love with a pure heart above all things, having a fervent love, then I won't be doing acts of self-centeredness. Otherwise, that'll be the evidence that the fruit of love is absent. Now let's look at the next one. Love is not provoked. A passive voice here, present passive addictive. The subject is being acted on by an outside force. So put yourself in the statement and ask yourself these questions. Are you easily aggravated? Do you have a short fuse? Are you exasperated quickly? That's the opposite of patience. Patience and long-suffering is where love lives. And like we said, what's being done to you may be wrong. What people are saying to you perhaps could be wrong. But what fervent love does is it isn't easily provoked. Some versions say it this way, love is not easily angered. Philip says it's not touchy. Love isn't touchy. So love can rule out what gets on your nerves by patience, and love can overrule your fleshly reactions. And if I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, that I won't be touchy or be able to be provoked. See, If I'm going to be able to establish some reconciliation in the church, if I'm going to live in harmony with other people who may not even like me, if I'm going to be in the most diverse group on the planet, the church, and work together for a greater good and for a higher calling, then I'm not going to be easily angered see, or easily provoked. Otherwise, that's the evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is absent. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3.12. He says, uh, uh, he says, uh, so those who have been chosen of God and holy and beloved. Let's see where I am here. If you're back there, go to slide 23. Would you do that? Colossians 3.12, it says, so as those who have been chosen by God and beloved, what should response to that evoke from us? Thankfulness. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Why? Because someone will offend you. Someone will hurt you, hurt your feelings. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, that's a pretty broad stroke, right? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, that's what the church is supposed to look like. If you have a complaint against anyone, see, deal with one another in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, very similar to what we're seeing right now, right, in 1 Corinthians 13, very very similar to what we see in 1 Peter 4, fervent love, exactly what Paul's talking about, open your heart to me. See. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, and here's the bar, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. It takes us right into the illustration of what love looks like when it's there. Love what? does not take into account a wrong suffered. Present middle imperative. Indicative, rather. Uh, now, a form of this word is used by Paul to describe how God reckons righteousness to a believer. 
but it is a word connected with the keeping of accounts and making note of something, keeping track of it and calculating up what's owed or what's been paid or what's done. And so that portion of that word is used when it has to do with imputing righteousness because God has added it all up and then he's paid the entire amount. See? So you don't owe anything. And that's a really great thought. But here, when love is present, it says it doesn't keep an account of all the wrong things people do. This is one of the most difficult things, I think, for people to get over. And, and I'll be honest with you, I think it's one of the main reasons why people suffer with depression. And there are a number of reasons, but this is one of them, probably one of the big ones. Because they haven't learned not to keep an account of all the wrongs done to them. And I'm not saying that there weren't wrongs done to them. They very well mean horrible things. What I'm saying is that love, in order for you to be free, and the fruit of the Spirit love to be active in your life, you're going to have to learn not to keep a record of wrong. And beloved, if you want your marriage to last, learn how to do that early. Nobody needs a history lesson in the middle of a disagreement. In fact, when you start doing the history lesson, you are exhibiting the fact that love is absent. And when you do that to people in the church, you inhibit the unity of the church and its ability to function as it should. Love doesn't keep an account of wrong suffered. So just put your name in this very difficult to do, not to understand, but to do, passage. Because if love is there in your life, you're not going to keep records of offenses and hurts and slights and misunderstandings and anything else people around you do. This is what drives people into despair. They're not making it right, and you're remembering it, and you can't get over it, and so you're a victim all your life. All your life. Love takes no account of evil, doesn't harbor a sense of injury. Like David in Psalm 32, one, when he recognizes the forgiveness of the Lord, remember this? He says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity? There's our word and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the Hebrew equivalent of it. He doesn't keep track of sins. He's forgiven. That's what the Lord does. And that's the key, isn't it? Love forgives. And like we said, this is directly connected to 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers, calypte, present active indicative, stretches out and covers over to hinder the knowledge of a thing. See? It's the reality of the believer's life, all day, every day. Covers over a multitude, plethos, just means a full measure to the fullest possible amount of offenses. You can stretch out that big. It doesn't matter what you think you can do in the church if you're holding on to offenses and hurts and slights and whatever. Love's absent. It's a non-negotiable, beloved. If you're holding on to offenses right now and you're remembering things people did to you or to someone else, first of all, I would say you probably don't know the whole story. And so you are jumping to judgment when you don't understand everything. And number two, there's no way love's present. There's no way love's present. And you wonder why you're struggling with your spouse or whatever. Listen, if you're just rattling off the list of offenses every time you have an argument, then you're just making withdrawals from the account of love. Okay? You're robbing the sweetness of your relationship. Don't do that, see? And it does the same thing inside the church, see? And there won't be reconciliation when what you're doing accounts for nothing and you're building with wood, hay, and straw and you know all the other stuff we talked about instead of gold, silver, and costly stone. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. We'll move right along here. Notice Paul says, love takes no joy in evil of any kind. But we can find ourselves doing this through what we read and watch and listen to, right? It's very easy to take joy in those things that are unkind and those things are unrighteous and the you know our coarse jesting and joking we can even show love's absent and we have seriously impaired our ability to judge the culpability of people you know we're rejoicing in, in some unrighteousness that we think they did but we don't even understand that do we we, we have a seriously impaired ability uh, to judge the culpability of someone else we don't even, we don't judge ourselves very well right we always give the benefit of the doubt to ourselves and, the, and no benefit of the doubt to anybody else see we want people in our timeline, we give them over to judgment, uh, and ultimately times we take delight in it. But uh, when love is there, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. 
See? And put your name there. You don't take delight in evil. Love is there. You know? Just as a footnote, you know, you're going to see here that Paul doesn't rehash the bad behavior of the church here. He doesn't come back and say, you've done all these things. See, it's a perfect opportunity for him to say, remember? These are things you did. But he doesn't do that, see? Instead, he just says, you know, he just says this, it lets them put themselves in the commands. Love doesn't act rudely. Love doesn't self-centered. Love doesn't have a short fuse. Love doesn't keep a blog book of memories of bad things people have done to them. It doesn't rejoice in evil of any kind. Now, by contrast with, with the eight attitudes of act, or actions of love, it is not or does not do. Paul now provides five positive expressions of love, and four of them are strengthened by the word all. Let's look at the first one. Love, um, love rejoices in the truth. And that would just um, seem to be just obvious, right? The idea should be expressed like this. Love shares truth's joy, right? So, so from the other side, it cannot rejoice when the truth is denied. And, and Paul had to speak the truth in love. And sometimes truth hurts, but it's worth it because it's the truth, right? Love shares the truth of morality. Love shares the truth of righteousness. It shares the joy of the gospel. It, it shares the joy of the truth of God, whatever it may be. Does that mark your life? Because if it does, love's there. See, Love shares truth's joy. Now, that doesn't mean that love parades around a bunch of things. Remember 1 Peter 4, 8? Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers, hides, multitude of things. Love isn't looking to spill the beans. See, Love isn't looking to embarrass someone. Just because you rejoice in the truth doesn't mean you parade everything around that everybody's ever done. Okay? Obviously. Then love bears all things. Love bears all things. Again, put your name here in the place of love. Love is personified. You're the person. Bears. Present active indicative. Stego. Root of this word has to do with the roof of the house. So the idea is it's the thatching that shields or protects. So the idea of bearing is the idea of covering to, to keep something off which threatens so love doesn't give way easily. So in that respect, it endures. So here, love conceals what's displeasing in another and doesn't drag it out into the hard light of public you know, scrutiny. To bear up is, it could be a shelter from difficult things and shielding others. Love does that. See, Love does that. Men, don't, don't expose your wife to the harshness of everything you have to deal with. You, she doesn't have to know every single horrible detail about every single person and, and everything you have to do on a regular basis, you can shield her from that. See? And you do that with your children, and you should. That's, that's what love does. Love bears up, see? In the case of the root word, you know, it bears up under weather or times or harsh conditions to hold out against, to, to forbear. The roof is put up and it doesn't fall down easily. That's the idea. So the action strengthened by the word all, whatever beats down on it. Whatever the situation, however difficult it may be, it bears all. It's not easily defeated. See, First Corinthians nine eleven, Paul's making a case for the church, church support for those who minister to her. He says this. He says, um, "You remember this? Paul's ministering there. They haven't provided any support for him, and he says, if we sowed spiritual things to you in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share." The right over you do we not more nevertheless we did not use this right but we endure as our word stegomen all things so that we will cause no hindrance for the gospel of christ so in order not to impede the gospel proclamation from corinth even though he's in need and he has a right to have his needs met he gives up the right and he endures and and love does this see and it doesn't easily fall down i know i know people like that don't you people who bear they bear long and difficult relationships. They bear long and difficult circumstances and personal trials. They bear long. They don't fall down easily. You know what? Love's there. And that's what fervent love means. And we need it in the church and in our families. Let's look at our third positive expression of love. Love believes all things. Pistuo. It's a word we're very familiar with. It relates to the noun faith, the root from the addition of the idea of trust. And so we have the essence of Paul's emphasis on this expression of love, and that is why some versions have love always trusts. That's certainly the idea here. It doesn't mean that love is gullible. Because remember, love shares truth's joy. Love's not gullible. So the idea here that it's love in action is always ready to allow for circumstances and to see the best in other people. 
Isn't that great? To see the best, to have confidence in, to always be ready and geared up to accept as true the best possible scenario. That's such a refreshing fruit to have somebody who believes the best. They're ready to accept the best possible scenario in all of the stuff that goes on, right? Always ready to give the benefit of the doubt. There you go. It's nice living with people like that, isn't it? Always trusts, points to the quality, believes all things to the scope. See, Love believes all things, that is, it tries to put the best possible construction on every action or event. It's a volitional response that will say, Holy Spirit, control me today, take over my life, I want Christ to live through me, and time in the Word will begin to change the thought process, and then the fruit of love will be there to be applied to your service of others, and you will begin to believe all things. The best possible outcome, that's what you are hoping for, you desire, see. And not talking about what it probably is, see. Instead of thinking the worst of an event or a situation, you're thinking about the best possible scenario. And then our fourth ex positive expression of love is found in this next one. Love hopes all things. Some versions have always hopes. Again, present active indicative. El Pizzo, it's the forward look. That's the idea. Love looks forward. It, it's not unreasoned optimism. The reality that it's based on his grace. It's the refusal to take failure as final. That's it. Yeah. Somebody around you fails. It's a refusal to take that failure as final, but to hope and endure. See, we see the same word many places. First Timothy 4.10, you know, for it is for this, for we labor, work to weariness, right, and strive. Agonizometha. That's where we get our word, the English word agonize. Because we have fixed our, mark this, hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. What, what is that hope? That's the long view. That this temporary difficulty is just going to be just that, temporary. And the long view is, I've, I've got my hope set further down the line. See, things will be better. So move forward towards the future. So ask yourself some questions so that you can know if your work is producing eternal results. You know, am I an Eeyore? Are you an Eeyore? Uh, it'll probably rain later today. Do I let my perspective of realism shadow my optimism? Listen, because if love is there, we're going to always, always have hope. And sometimes it seems like a really long line of hope, especially when it has to do with family and friends, right? It's a long line of hope where you're holding on to that and looking forward to the best possible outcome and is strengthened by the word all. In verse 7, we find our fifth positive expression of love. Love endures all things. It's to abide with, those are two words, it's the literal translation, abide with, it's strengthened by the word all. Love abides with all. Remember 1 Corinthians 4.11, to this present hour we're both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless, and when we're persecuted, we mark this, endure, we abide with it. We stick it out. Paul had these physical traits, these actual actions of love as he dealt with the church. That's what it looked like. See, so when you, ask, when you ask, it's a great question. When you ask, how do I know if I'm there and what is that going to look like? This is what that's going to look like. See, This is what that's going to look like. So with Paul, of course, here it's the idea of sticking it out in persecution. It appears that the best way to understand the attribute of love is love isn't overwhelmed. Love isn't overwhelmed. And perhaps the idea is like, you know, because of our adversary and because of sin that will always be around in circumstances and people in the present church age, the church is going to have to bear and believe and hope and endure. And there's always going to be opportunities to disregard wrongs and rejoice with the truth and to habitually do acts of kindness and react in patience. See, there's always going to be opportunities for those things, both in your relationship with your family and out and into the relationship of your family, the church. See, Clearly love with those actions will require decision-making and effort. And they're not feelings, and they're not emotions. They are self-sacrificing acts of will that are not intuitive. They are not intuitive. Your first reaction as you live in this unredeemed flesh will not be these things. However, for the Lord to say, this is love, and what? fervent love looks like 
is to already imply, and we already know the truth of the matter, which is you are able to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in you as you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. And the longer you do that, the more love, that first fruit of the Spirit, becomes evident, and it becomes evident in these actions. See. Resources are there for you to act in this way as the word dwells in you richly. And just obviously these indicators were not present in increasing measure in the Corinthian church, which is why Paul has to go through this and why we took this little detour so we can understand what that looks like. And so Paul had every human reason to reject them because of the way they treated him. Every human reason. It was not made up offenses. But the church doesn't operate that way. And believers don't operate that way, see. Love is our identity. Love covers. Love believes all things. Love doesn't keep record of wrong. Love hopes for the best. And Paul desires to be reconciled with the church. And we saw really three principles already that help us make the pathway clear. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to see the last three principles for reconciliation. And then we're going to move into verse 5. And the cool thing about verse 5 is we move into that section. The cool thing that's going to happen is we're going to see some wonderful responses to the ministry, ones every minister hopes for. So the Holy Spirit gets involved in the hearts of people, and they're willing to let him work. We're going to see some responses, because we saw some things that, uh, at the beginning, hardships in ministry, uh, responses that weren't what we hoped they would be. But in the last part of this chapter, we're going to see some things that happened in the church that were such a blessing as a result of them understanding what the Lord wanted from them. And we started in chapter 6, and the hardships, and, and the people didn't respond like you wished, and, and, and wished them to respond, and all, all of that. But here we're going to go and get a glimpse of a visual fruit of ministry that only the Lord can accomplish in his own timing. And that's what we'll look at next week, Lord willing. But today, let's renew our commitment to fervently love one another. Let's start with those people who are sitting closest to you and move out from there. Let's pray and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. I'm grateful today for our ministry among uh, each other. Thank you for the ministry to one another, for the blessings that have occurred already, for the encouragement and and the prayer and the lifting up and, and the faithfulness displayed to one another. Thank you for uh, the ministry that's going on downstairs with our little ones and all the faithfulness that's connected with that and the early morning stuff that happened and through the week or when people came and did things under the radar and the, and the midweek uh, fellowship dinner and all those who get involved with that and serve and, and nobody really knows and, and our Awana kids who, who uh, are served by sacrificing adults and teens who, who know that the, that the work uh, of the ministry is the higher bar and we have that common bond and we serve along with people that that we uh, are not, we're not like, and that we don't perhaps wouldn't like and wouldn't interact with in any other place, but here we love. And Lord, I pray that you just can strengthen that response, that those actions. And Lord, you, you're able by your Holy Spirit to look into each of our lives. You know where we're having a hard time. And so we give you free reign. We even speak that in our heart right now. You have free reign to point out the places where love, these types of love actions are absent. And Lord, I pray as we dwell in your word each day, and understand what these words say and how they apply to us, Lord, I pray that we'll begin volitionally to respond in the ways that would be pleasing to you, that we might have the blessing of, of obedience and your blessing on our church and its ministries and, and of course, on our families and, and our children and all the things that are connected to our actions. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for these people. Right, you'll enrich them greatly today. Encourage them as they go out. Help us to be salt and light in our communities. I pray that we'll be faithful to give the gospel out as you provide opportunity. We might accomplish that great commission you gave us. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.